dear fellow siblings, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the great suffering servant. We are fast approaching the commemoration of yet another anniversary of the Reformation, which sounds odd because there is no particular date on which the Reformation occurred. We use October 31st, 1517, as the day on which we commemorate the Reformation, but that wasn't the end. It, it, it's as good a day as any because on that day, as you know, Luther posted that. He nailed those 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, and yet the Reformation wasn't accomplished by that. It was the match that God set to that dry tinder of work righteousness in the Roman Catholic Church of Luther's day. In fact, one of the more remarkable and unsung aspects of the whole Reformation is how quickly God carried Martin Luther from a devout Catholic monk and then priest to the Lutheran that he later became, which sounds weird because it's his own name. But I don't know if many realize that of the 95 theses, a significant number, as I recall, about a third, are doctrinally incorrect. Luther was, again, making that transition from that good Catholic priest to the Christian he became, trusting in Jesus as his, the payer of his sin debt rather than himself. That transition was remarkable. So in October of 1517, he posted the 95 Theses, a significant number, again, were doctrinally incorrect, and yet, only six months later, he delivered something in Heidelberg called the Heidelberg Theses that were doctrinally flawless as much as man can. He presented them in that just at six months, he grew that much through his study of God's Word and the Holy Spirit working in him. 28 statements that are not only doctrinally sound, but dealt with deeper, even more important things than the, than the 95 Theses did, things like total depravity, the difference between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. And now here we need to pause because it can get confusing, can't it? Total depravity, theology of glory, theology of the cross, theses, is any of this really necessary? Is it even worthwhile? It is, very much so. Our text for this morning will help us to see how and why these things are critically important still today as they were over 500 years ago in Luther's day. The text that will guide and instruct us this morning is Paul's first letter to the church of Thessalonica, the first chapter beginning with the first verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word in humble acknowledgement of the authorship of these words and their truth, we ask this same God to bless us through our study of these, his words this morning as we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Curiously enough, for the second week in a row, we begin by talking about Aristotle. Many of you know him. He was a famous Greek philosopher. Aristotle lived and worked about 300 years before the birth of Christ. So why are we still talking about this man, Aristotle? Because his teachings still have a profound effect on especially Western thought. That means us, our society. Aristotle was the third in that line of three famous Greek philosophers that you probably learned about in school. I imagine they still teach something about them. Aristotle was a pupil of Plato. Plato was a pupil of Socrates. Now, what made Aristotle especially influential was the fact that he tutored Alexander the Great, who later went on to conquer most of the civilized world of their day. Again, we still talk about him, even though it's been 2,300 years, because he still influences us, not just society, but also us in a way. Philosophers have a hard time separating their philosophy from religion. In fact, the two become more or less one in many of them. Philosophers try to watch and learn based on what they can observe in everyday life. They try to learn how things work. And a philosophy is this idea, this pattern of thought that seeks to explain why things are the way they are, why things happen the way they do. And to guide the individual that adopts that philosophy going forward. Aristotle's philosophy, which it was impossible not to become also something of 
his religion, it certainly became that, was that you could look and observe and learn something about God, not from what God revealed to us, not from what he wrote to us in the Bible, but rather that you can learn something about God through his actions. What does he do? Now, this, humanly speaking, this is logical. This makes sense. Little children, you know, you kids know, you can look at mom and you can know something about mom based on what you see. If your mom comes in and she's all stern-faced and she's just gritting her teeth, and then you know it's probably not a good time to ask mom for something. You can learn something about mom from her actions. She's mad. She's unhappy. She's frustrated. Whatever. You can observe that. And you also then learn something about your own behavior, don't you? Because if you do something bad, that's mom's reaction. Never grandma. Grandma's always smiling and always, always give you cookies. But mom and dad, it, that's just how things work in life. Even employees, you can go into work and your boss comes stomping in. Oh, this is not the time to ask for a raise. And what you quickly learn, therefore, and this makes perfect sense, as a child even, I know how to make mom mad. I know how to make mom happy. My actions affect God. So if I look at mom or dad or my employer or anything else and they're mad because of something I did, I get it. So I get how this works. Now that makes sense, right? But if you carry that into religion, which man does, you remember philosophy and religion, it's hard to keep those two separate for these people. Aristotle came to teach and believe that you could learn something about God from his actions and therefore you could also learn how to manipulate God's blessings or his curse, his anger, or his pleasure by your own actions. Because that's how it works in life. Does it work that way in connection with the Christian faith? Nope. Not even close. But that's exactly how even in Jesus' day, 300 years after Aristotle, They'd been affected by this Greek philosophical idea that you can look at somebody and see how they're doing in life and know what God thinks and feels about that person. So if the person is rich, God is pleased with them. If they're poor and suffering, did something wrong, God is upset with them. You remember the account where they, Jesus and his disciples came upon that blind man and his disciples asked him, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. We hear about it all the way back in Job. That's probably the first reference in the Bible. Job's friends, he was suffering. He used to be rich, and now he's suffering. Well, you did something wrong. Better figure it out. Repent, move on, whatever, because you're not going to be blessed by God. You're going to keep suffering until you appease God by repenting of what you did or doing something you're supposed to, that he wanted you to do, or whatever. Do you remember Jesus' answer to his, to his followers? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
There's two parts to that answer. Earthly circumstances have nothing to do with God's favor or disfavor. But the second part of that, when Jesus said that the works of God might be displayed in him, there's at least two ways to understand that. The first, the most common understanding, is Jesus saying that this man was born blind so that right now I could perform a miracle and others could see and come to know me as more than just a rabbi, as who I in fact tell them I am, the Savior and Son of God. There's another way to look at that. That it was through suffering that this man came to know Jesus. Luther said in the 18th of those Heidelberg theses, it is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. That's the theology of the cross. The theology of glory, that was Aristotle's baby. And that's still the predominant philosophy of even many Christians today. Rather than the theology of glory, it was subtle, hear it again. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Well, that's not how it's supposed to work, isn't it? God, doesn't God love Christians? Isn't that his true religion? And we, his children? So you would think that if it worked the way Aristotle believed, as the world today believed it does, it, you would think that if you're doing the right thing, if God is pleased with you, then things should be going your way. Everything should happen. That's great. should have just heaven on earth. But it doesn't. That's the theology of glory, and it doesn't work. It isn't how God accomplishes. In fact, Luther said, you know what? If you look at Christianity and what we know about God from his actions and his words, it's almost the exact opposite of the way that the world thinks it works. Job didn't do anything wrong, and yet for reasons known only to God, he allowed Job to suffer, to accomplish his will. We don't get to figure out if that's right or wrong or how that works. We just understand that from God. The theology of glory, you get to determine, and it's easy to see if somebody is powerful, rich, and influential, that means God loves them and will bless them. Now you hear it again in Christian congregations that the, the vending machine God churches where it, it, God loves you and all you got to do is demand. If you don't have it's because you didn't demand it from God. He's got to give it to you if you demand it of him because he said, ask and I'll give you. Ask yourself this, these questions. If you were to adopt Aristotle's view, the theology of glory, meaning good things, that means I'm good, ask yourself these questions. What would you first of all believe about God from examining world events? Would you be able to identify God's favored ones? Could you pick them out? 
would you conclude that God is responsible for both good and evil? Would you conclude that a person has been good if his life is good and bad if his life is bad, filled with frustrations and hardships? Would you assume that man can alter his relationship with his God together with his earthly fortunes by his own works or actions? You see how this just bled naturally, inexorably into work righteousness. Because God blesses, in their theology, God blesses those who are doing good things. So all you have to do, according to the theology of glory, is look around and say, who's rich, who's influential, who's powerful, who's got the life that they want, and imitate them, do what they're doing. You see how utterly that fails? A substantial number of the most powerful, influential people in this world are morally bankrupt. And if we're supposed to imitate them to get what they have, that's satanic. That's the devil's plan for the human race. That's exactly what he offered Jesus, isn't it? Showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Worship me and I'll give you all of this. Now, that was nonsense in connection with Jesus. But that's what he offers everyone else. He leaves the godless alone. In fact, he loves to bless if he can, and we don't know if he has that power, but make everything good for the godless because there is their cattle already penned up. So of course he's going to feed them. Of course he's going to give them everything they want because they're his. Happy, wealthy. Jesus, however, teaches us the theology of the cross, which is Jesus suffered. The perfect one suffered. You remember what the writer of the Hebrews, how he put it? For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And these Christians in Thessalonica, you receive the word in much affliction. But that's not supposed to be how it works. Clearly there's need for ongoing reformation also in this. The theology of glory, that false theology, lives on. God in his word again teaches almost the exact opposite. The theology of the cross. That God accomplishes things through suffering. We don't get to decide how God works. And yet, reading his word, observing what we see, we see not a theology of glory, but a theology of suffering where God accomplishes what he needs, wants accomplished, often, primarily, through suffering. So this blind man that the disciples saw sitting there, you think that guy would have been interested in Jesus? Had everything been going well? Had he not been this destitute beggar born blind? 
I think that's what Jesus was talking about. He was born blind that the glory of God might be revealed in him. Because this guy had nothing. Nothing. And yet he became an heir of eternal life through suffering. Because you know that. It's often only when God allows hardship and suffering into our lives that the Holy Spirit can break through this, this resistance of ours. Because when we get preoccupied with just good times, we drift, we become complacent, we become apathetic because things are going so well right now. And you know why this is especially important, especially necessary? Because conversion often leads to suffering. Why is that important? How many times have you seen someone at least say that they have become a Christian or come to know Jesus. And yet, you've probably seen that they expect this theology of glory in their lives. They expect that now they're right with God, things are going to go well with them, and then they don't go well. And then they get exactly what the people in Thessalonica got, that they receive the word in much affliction and they become quickly disillusioned. Uh, you, you say, I'm a child of God now. Would a, would a loving God really treat his child this way? Go back to that statement of Luther's, which is scriptural, biblical. Until we're crushed, until we come to understand our total inability to earn any of God's favor, we won't come to appreciate Jesus. And even as we come, came to know him, we're converted, we drift so easily, we're so easily lured into all this other stuff, the weeds grow up around us and we allow them to. God doesn't want that. You remember the prodigal son? You remember how he started out? We have no reason to doubt that he was a good worker and a faithful son and all that. But he developed this arrogance, this entitled attitude. So he goes to his father, all oh, this and that, and he says, Father, give me what you owe me. What did it take to turn that man around? Profound suffering, hunger, destitution. He blew through his inheritance, and then he's envying the pigs for what he was feeding them. And then humbled, he came back to his father. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And his father, so easy for us to get lured into this and imagine that we have to be doing something better, doing something different to earn God's love and favor because I don't seem to have it now. Things don't seem to be going well, so I must be doing something wrong Keep your eyes focused on this key truth of God's word. You don't understand God's word and will every time. You don't rather understand God's working in your life. Don't be lured into that thought, that idea, that misconception that if things are going well, that means I'm doing the right thing. And if they're not going well, I'm doing something wrong. God may use this to instruct us, to call us away from sin, but recognize also his love 
in suffering, hardship, frustration that he allows into your life. He's perfectly consistent in his love for you. It isn't up and down and up and down. In Christ, he has forgiven you fully, completely, thoroughly, forever. The sin debt has already been paid. It's been wiped from your account. No one can use it. Remember how Paul, or Paul set that up? Who's going to accuse us of sin on the day of judgment? Let's see the candidates. God the Father? Nope. He already declared us not guilty by raising Jesus from the dead. Accepted Jesus' sacrificial death as the full payment for sin. So not God the Father. God the Son? No. He's the one who died to pay for your sin. How about Satan? No, because there's no evidence. It's as if... It's as if Satan thought he could gather all this sin, all this sin that I tempted them to do, and all this sin, I got that all, and he had it locked into this evidence room, and then came the trial date, and he opened the evidence room, and there's nothing there because God nailed it all to the cross. It's gone. There's nothing there. The devil will have nothing with which to convict or even accuse any of you. Because God the Father says, I remember their sins no more. Oh, that, Jesus paid for that. And that, and that. The world will try its best. Satan working in and through the world and his minions in the world will try to discourage you from this one path to life through any means possible. Don't let them expect that, as Jesus said, if they did this to the green tree, what will they do to the dry? In other words, if they're doing this to me, if I have suffering in this life, you should expect nothing different, but that doesn't change reality. That doesn't change the fact that this is the one path to eternal life. So if things don't go well, if you face hardship or trial, if you're injured, if you're sick, if a loved one is sick, if a loved one is carried home in Christ, that's not an evidence, that is not evidence of God's displeasure, his hatred, his animosity towards you. Then bow before God and say, as did Job, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Trust his continual love, his continual care, the forgiveness that's yours. Trust his wisdom. Jesus, through his suffering, established that relationship for us. And that same Savior has promised that he will never give you a cross that you cannot bear. Amen.